Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. Not here today is my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. She will be back next week with a fabulous interview. I'm not going to tell you about it. It's going to be a surprise. And then the following week, we'll come back together once again and have our hilarious exchanges like you are used to hearing every week. Uh, here to provide the hilarious exchanges this week, I've got Paul Begala from CNN, from the Clinton White House, from many best-selling books that you may have read if you go to the politics section of your bookstore. Welcome, Paul Begala. Joe, thanks a lot. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you here. And just moments ago, we were offline talking and realized, I guess I didn't dig deep enough into your Wikipedia page, but you're also <laughs> from Texas uh, yes. or it spent some time in Texas, as I did. And so we were just connecting on that. Yeah, grew up there. And um, I think it was a I loved it. And I still go back there. A lot, a lot of family there. I have a son in Austin and, and a lot of family and mostly in Houston and Austin. And uh, I was just down there a couple of weeks ago, as I said, uh, in, in your neck of the woods, in Corpus. Yes, Corpus Christi, really Texas. God's country. Gulf of Mexico. You know, I, I, lived in, I lived in Missouri City uh, in a subdivision called Quail Valley, which I loved because there were no quail and there was no valley. <laughs> but I think like hot, flat and sweaty was probably not as good in the sales pitch. So they called it Quail Valley. Ah, that's nice. Well, you got to, you know, marketing. <laughs> marketing is everything. That's right. But I loved it. But it's not as pretty as Corpus, I have to say. Your part of the state is really great. Yeah. Well, I, um, uh, for those who may be interested, I recently published an essay in Texas Highways Magazine, uh, which is the uh, magazine of the uh, tr you know, Department of Transportation in Texas. How's that for obscure? And uh, I published an article about how I grew up surfing in Texas, which a lot of people are like, surfing in Texas? Yes, you can do it. And I did it. And I grew up surfing in Texas. And now you know. Absolutely. Well, I, and I know Texas highways. They have some of the best, uh, seriously, some of the best writing and photography of, uh, it's not just like government press releases. It's a really good magazine. It's very true. It's a, it's a glossy magazine. And uh of course, there are many fabulous places to go in Texas, beautiful places to uh, eat and drink. You know, usually when we're talking about Texas on this podcast, it's about all the hor horrific politics there. But uh, it's nice to let yeah. people know once in a while that something good is happening there. But um, so uh, anyway, I'm delighted to have you here. You and I have um, crossed paths here and there over the years. Yeah. I've seen you on the sets at CNN and your pancake makeup. So uh, it doesn't get any more intimate than that, people. Um, and, uh, you know, you and I have crossed paths and the world has changed so dramatically in the time that you and I have probably seen each other. Maybe we saw each other during the Bush administration or the Obama administration. And now, like, my God, it's like a alternate universe. The world's been flipped upside down. Just out of curiosity, as a TV, as, as part of, you know, your TV folk, did you see mm -hmm. the movie Don't Look Up? I loved it. And I know a yeah. lot of people are criticizing it. Yes. And it was savage in its satire of media and politics, the two worlds where I've lived in my adult life. And I just thought it was terrific. And I know they're getting a lot of static. But I, I thought it was great. Yeah. And it, it reinforces the capacity for the far right to lie to you right to your face and for people to believe it, even if it's going to kill them. Yeah. And uh, I, anyway, I thought it was great. I, I, uh, I don't know where you are on that. Movie, no, I, I loved it. it. I thought it was a well-deserved oh. spanking. And yeah. um, I actually profiled the director, Adam McKay, for Vanity Fair. It's in the current issue on newsstands. There's my little plug. And so yeah, I guess so you got him to talk about this terrible. I read it. I love Adam McKay. I don't yeah. know him, but I, I admire his work greatly. And it did that rupture. Yes. With I don't Will want to Ferrell. because it's so painful. But you really drew him out on that, Joe. Yeah. Well, um, he and the he, guy uh, is clearly tortured about it. He's tortured about it. Yeah. You know, he's an artiste. You know, he's got yeah. uh, lots of things roiling inside right and so uh some yeah. of that came well, out it was a 
terrific piece uh, about a really, I think, terrific, uh, wonderful director. Uh, the Big Short is, a, you know, he just does really fantastic stuff. Well, and in a way, he's uh, overlaps with what you and I do. He's interested in current affairs. He's trying to come up with mm-hmm. another way to interpret it and, you know, get to the right. heart of the matter, the zeitgeist, right? Um, so the zeitgeist of this moment we're in right now, you know, I'm loath to even discuss it because it's so uh, it's going to take our conversation to such a dark, terrible place. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, the yesterday Biden gave what one of the historically long um, presser yesterday. And uh, today I was just I uh, stopped into a, um, a diner earlier today and I saw. The two the Daily News and the New York Post, right? So you get your you get the extreme version. And the New York Post says <laughs> Biden's confused, disastrous Q and A. He said what? And then on the other hand, the Daily News is focused not at all on that, and they're focused on Trump and Empire of Lies, and that's about <laughs> uh, you know Attorney General Letitia James' case against the Trump Organization. But let me just ask you what you thought of Biden's presser yesterday, because you know he. Uh, you can't say that he didn't have energy and stamina, but did he right. have coherence? Was he? What, what about his answers? Right. Uh, I, there were so many different facets to it. Fundamentally, I thought it was a very strong performance. And you're right. You don't show that you have energy and acuity by saying, "I have energy and acuity." You demonstrate it. Right. And uh, you know, I, I've prepped a lot of politicians for a lot of press conferences, and you know, you're in a room with some of the very smartest people in America, and also a few clowns. I have to say, there were some ridiculous uh, questions. And you know, as the American president, that uh, uh, your words can move markets or crater countries. <laughs> yeah. And so every word, and he, I think he screwed up on Ukraine, right? I think it was a terrible mistake, and he's now cleaning it up and fixing That's right. it. But I thought in the main, particularly my world in politics, he finally started blaming Republicans. I, I've been on their ass about this uh, just as an outsider. You know, I don't work for any politicians anymore. But good gosh, the Republicans have opposed some of the most popular things ever proposed, right? They're against a child tax credit. They're against pre-K. They're against senior citizens getting hearing aids uh, under their Medicare program. They're against premium support to make your health insurance cheaper. These things all poll at 65%. They're opposing all of them and paying no political price. Why? Because the Democrats aren't making them pay a price because the president didn't lash them for it. And he did yesterday. And I loved it. I thought that was great. And I hope Democrats pick up on that yeah. because uh, it's not just about running around getting a gold star for all your precious accomplishments. It's it's about tearing the hide off the other guys and shaming them. Yeah. How could it be that not one Republican, he should give the not one Republican speech, by the way, not one Republican supports childcare, not one Republican supports community college, not one Republican supports hearing aids, right? And, and go through the whole list. And he did a little of that yesterday and it's not in his nature. I know Biden a long time. Yeah. I don't care if it's in his nature. It's in his job description. It's his obligation. And he did it. And that, that made me as a political guy very happy. Yeah. Well, the guy has uh, an amazing amount on his plate, you know, yeah. and I've been thinking about this. I was just reading a column by Matthew Iglesias in The Times and and the kind of contradiction of him being having been elected uh, to bring normalcy back to the right. to the country in some way. And yet also to be FDR. Right to be a an iconic, uh, hugely a change agent. So how can you be right. both a normalizer and a change agent at the same time? And I feel like his presidency has been kind of a little bit schizophrenic that way. Like it, it I think people can't get their hands around it, which may account for why his polling is so muddy. <laughs> let's put it that way, right? Um, but let's talk about the voting rights bill because that has been front and center for the last few weeks. It goes right to the heart of the 2020 election and the lies that were the big lie. And it's tied to the January 6th insurrection and people's beliefs about the election. It's tied to the way Republicans have been going state to state, trying to make it difficult for uh, people of color and minorities to to vote. And yet it's kind of been hopeless all along on, as a federal bill. And yet Democrats and Biden have continued to expend political capital on it, you know, so which leads me to believe or think they're just doing it for politics. It's like they think that the voters want to see this. I mean, what or is it just bad, you know, management? What's going on here? Or did he think that Joe Manchin and cinema could be turned around? I'm just I don't understand why they did it. I think it's the last. I think that uh, Joe Biden believed 
that he could move them or that the arguments would move them. I don't know Senator Sinema. I know Joe Manchin a long time. He was the Secretary of State of West Virginia, and he had a great progressive record on protecting and expanding voting rights as a Secretary of State. So he knows about these issues and he cares about them. And I, even for me, as somebody who likes Manchin, I think it was unforeseeable and unimaginable that he would put protection of the filibuster, which once upon a time may have had its place, but is utterly now, uh, uh, probably always has been a, a tool of obstruction, that he put that ahead of voting rights for, for uh, minorities, for young people, for elderly. That was unforeseeable to me. I really didn't believe at the end of the day that Manchin would allow something this important to go down just to protect the filibuster. Um, it, it, and so I think it was right. I know they, they lost and they're going to lose, but um, you got to get caught trying. In fact, he's getting Biden's got a lot of static for having not done more earlier. I don't think the problem was one of the problem was not one of timing. It was one of arithmetic. He just doesn't have the votes. And in fact, spending those five months quietly uh, working mansion might have produced something in a way that's uh, beginning by screaming and yelling like he, he didn't scream and yell, but he gave a very forceful speech in Atlanta. If he'd begun with that, it probably wouldn't have gone anywhere either. So I don't question their strategy and tactics on this, but it breaks my heart uh, to see someone I like and admire crater something that's fundamental as voting rights in defense of something as stupid and and uh, historically and currently racist as the filibuster. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I'd love to have seen a voting rights bill happen. I think right. a lot of people would have. But I saw something earlier this week. It was uh, from a Democratic um, analyst, uh, Rui Ticciera. He's from the Center for American mm -hmm. Progress. And he said something that really caught my eye. It made me wonder about this tactical or strategic energy that they put into the voting rights bill. He was saying, first of all, he says it was never going to happen, given exactly what you're saying about the math. But he says, the source of confusion here is the failure to distinguish between intent and impact. He said, it is a reasonable contention that Republican intentions are not benign. They would like to depress the turnout of Democratic-leaning right. constituencies. That is the intent. But what is the impact likely to be? And he goes on to say that if you look into the fine print of what is going on state to state, that in fact, it would not really radically alter what Democrats can do when they need to get out the vote. They can they can work around these things. They're not he, he was arguing that they are not as worth the political capital that was put into them and that instead he argues that Biden should be focusing on normalization, he calls it, the normalization that he promised that people want, that in the middle want. You know, if you poll actually politically for voting rights, it doesn't poll that high even among minorities. It's not on the top of their own agenda, right? And I just I just throwing that out there to see what you want to say. Yeah, I, I see his point. I don't fully share it, I have to say. You know, the Voting Rights Act is one of the seminal accomplishments of a progressive movement. And just 15 years ago, 2006, it passed the Senate 98 to nothing with Mitch McConnell putting out a statement about how wonderful the Voting Rights Act is. And, and then a couple of things happened. First was Thief Justice Roberts, long before Donald Trump. Roberts went to war with voting rights. He literally called minority voting rights and the protection thereof, and I'm quoting him here, a sordid business. He said, it's a sordid business that's divvying us up by race. I, I think it's disgraceful. And he gutted Section 5. I'm getting kind of lawyerly here, but I am a lawyer. <laughs> Section 5 required uh, some states. I think it should apply to every state in every jurisdiction. Uh, it required them to get pre-clearance. Go to the Justice Department and say, we want to change our districts or our how many uh, ballot boxes we have, how many precincts we have, how many drop boxes. Any change in your voting procedures had to be approved by the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. And that prevented so many uh, racist things from happening at all because you're sitting in the meeting, I imagine, right, in the Republican Party and say, well, we'll never get this past the Justice Department. So let's not you know, take the hit being accused of racism. And when Roberts removed that, that prophylactic protection, it collapsed so many other voting rights and allowed uh, my, our beloved home state of Texas and other states to pass a bunch of things that have been, I think, very racially discriminatory. So I, I think we had to do it. And I, see, I think we still have to do it. Um, I, I know it looks like they've failed. I will say, I think I'm flipping Rui's argument, I think the Republicans 
are wrong to be so fearful of voting rights. Uh, I now live in Virginia. Uh, the Democrats controlled past tense, the governor's mansion and both houses of the legislature. And they passed the most progressive voting agenda that I've seen. Greatly expanding absentee voting, exp expanding uh, registration, exp all of this. And you know what? The Republicans won the next election in, in a state that they had just lost by 10 points. So Republicans actually won in Virginia, despite what they feared. Uh, you know, more people voting. There was no fraud. None of this. They're lying about that. They, I think I think some of these Republicans, like the chief justice of the United States, lie awake at night, unable to sleep, fearful that somewhere a person of color is voting and they just can't bear it. Uh, and it turns out it's not as frightening to them. It, 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 look at our beloved Texas. The Rio Grande Valley used to be the most Democratic part of Texas. Republicans gained 50 points, 5-0, between the Hillary election and the Biden election. Trump, Trump improved his performance by 50 points among a, almost 100% Latino community. So they can compete, and they should, and that's a much better way to do things. So I kind of flip Rui's uh, uh, argument. I think it's Republicans who should not be as fearful of more Americans participating. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> I understand, but we both know that it's all, on some level, public relations to feed into the 2020 uh, election fraud lie, right? It's all kind right. of to try to to uh, appease Trump and make it look like they're sort of buying in, right, to his bullshit. So, um, right. so by your own argument, maybe they're actually hurting themselves um, in some instances, but. Um, I think they may be, but the, the the reality is Democrats now have to, once this fails, and I fear it will, I'm quite sure it will, they have to organize around it. They can't yeah. give up. That's right. You know, I, 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 we were talking on the phone before this uh, yesterday, and I, I told you about this story. On Martin Luther King Day, Andrew Young, who was perhaps King's closest aide and friend and advisor, sent out a letter that a friend of mine forwarded to me. And in the letter, he told this story. King won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he went to Oslo to receive it, December 1964. On the way home, King says to Andy, hey, let's stop in Washington and check in on LBJ. And so they do. Johnson has just won the biggest landslide since FDR. And yet he was so afraid uh, that he made King and Young wait for hours and hours and hours before he would meet with them until the press corps went home that day. And he met with them, and they said, Mr. President, the Civil Rights Act last year was great, but you remember, we, you pulled the voting rights section out because you couldn't get it passed. Now we need a separate voting rights bill. You got to do it. And Johnson said to them, I don't have the power. I used up all my power getting civil rights. I don't have the power. And what Andy says they did, they walked out of the White House and he turned to Dr. King and he said, well, what do you think, Martin? And Dr. King said, I think we got to go get this president some more power. And I love that story because it reminds us that the fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our stars, it lies in ourselves, right? What King did, what Andy did is they organized. They organized churches and businesses and labor unions and universities. And they, there was a woman named Amelia Boynton who came to them. She was from Dallas County, Alabama, Selma. And she said, I want to organize voter registration in Selma, Alabama. And they put that march together. My friend John Lewis almost lost his life, but that sacrifice got us the Voting Rights Act. They got Johnson more power. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what progressives need to do, right? Me included. I, I don't count myself out. Uh, I, I have, by the way, I do this 
it's maybe the thing I'm most passionate about. I've been an advisor for well over a decade and a supporter and a fundraiser for a group, let me plug them, called uh, the Voter Participation Center and its sister organization, the Center for Voter Information. They register young people, people of color, and unmarried women, three groups that are large in our country but underrepresented in our democracy. And I've been doing this for well over 10 years. And it's some of the most important work I think I can be doing. And all of us need to. So we have to organize a way around this. It yeah. makes me angry as hell that they've killed it. But we do have to. Or, and maybe if that's what Rui is saying, he's right, that we have to, you know, the scripture says man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so maybe we find a way to take their evil and use it for good. Right. Well, and to your point, and we also talked about this uh, earlier, which is that um, the people that could be helping empower Biden and giving him more power are not doing so. I mean, Stacey Abrams protested his speech in Georgia. Maybe she thought he was right. too late. OK, that's fine. That's something you can tell him behind closed doors. But she basically you know, made a public showing of it and um, put a, a harpoon in him. So like, right. you know, uh, that's not helpful. <laughs> well, you, you don't strengthen the movement by weakening the leader. And uh, Biden is the Democrats leader. Democrats ought to rally to him. If they think he's too weak, they should strengthen him. Yeah. And it, Dr. King could have walked out. He, he had the Nobel Peace Prize in his suitcase. Yeah, he could wow. have walked out of the White House lawn and blasted Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. And the entire world would have seen that, you know, that, that one of the most respected men in America, one of the great moral leaders, thinks that Johnson's a, a wuss and he's terrible and he's backstabbing the, the, the black community. He didn't do that. He went out and got Johnson more power. And I take such a lesson. I found Young's letter just deeply moving and really inspiring. Yeah. So what do you, you know, Biden obviously has, he must have brought Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema into the office and, hey, let's powwow here. Let's find out what I can do for you and what you can do for me kind of talk. Right. Why is, why are these, not, why aren't they working out? What, why is he not able to bring people to his side? Yeah, I, I don't know is the fundamental answer, but I, th I think it's, um, you know, politicians know two things, what you can do for them and what you can do to them. Uh -huh. And the truth is the latter is more important, right? I hate to, to quote Machiavelli, but it is true. Fear is a much better motivator than love. They're very different political situations. You know, cinema, who I don't know, so I, I can't really give you any insights into her, but she represents a state that is very purple but trending blue. You know, she, we've just won two Senate seats there. We hadn't won one in over 30 years. Uh, Joe Biden carried Arizona, the first Democrat to do so since Bill Clinton. Um, it's trending our way. And that puts her in a very different political situation than yeah. Joe Manchin, where in his entire state of 55 counties, not a single county has gone Democratic since 2008. That's <laughs> so wow. 12 years where we didn't carry a single county. So I, I, I consider them very differently. Um, but I, I just think that right now they were unable to come through for, I think they're being honest about their reasons. I just don't agree with their reasons. Because they're in precarious political situations, one going in one direction, one going the other direction. You know, Manchin right. is trying to right. hold on to a Democratic foothold. The other one's trying to keep right. keep it going. In and, the and he is a real Democrat. I've known Manchin a long time. He is not going to switch parties. I may eat these words, yeah. save this podcast. Yes. He's not going to switch parties. And I do say to my progressive brothers and sisters, we're supposed to love endangered species. And Joe Manchin is the most endangered species in American politics. What if the Republicans had a senator from Hawaii? You think they'd cut her some slack, right? They'd make sure because they didn't. Republicans don't win a single county in Hawaii. Well, we have a Democrat from a state where they're hunting us down with dogs. And I'm really angry and very disappointed in what he's done, particularly on voting rights. Uh, and, and yet I understand that this is a guy. He's the only Democrat who can win in that state. I believe. And uh, so he's highly endangered. Yeah. And as you and I know, the Republican and Democratic parties are very structurally different. I mean, the, the Republicans uh, in some ways have it easy because they just find out what Trump wants them to do. And, and, and they're in a lockstep kind of party. And as we've seen from, you know, Cheney, uh, Liz Cheney, you know, you step one one little bit out of the line and you're gone, right? Poof. And the Democrats are sort of in a, you know, are herding cats sort of scenario. But um, let me ask you this, though. Biden could make it easier for them in one way. I, I wonder and question whether he's been, how successful he's been at selling his successes. I mean, the entire 
uh, kind of atmosphere around him is like a series of um, kind of political failures, right? Uh, he can't get this passed. He can't get that passed. He can't seem to get... Do you think that he needs to do a better job at just having a more commanding messaging? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. A hundred percent. He actually had a great first year. Yeah. You know, he took office and something like 2 million people had been vaccinated. Now it's 210 million. And I'm getting the number slightly wrong, but but almost nobody had been vaccinated, maybe four or five or six million. But now it's over, well over 200 million. About 75% of us have had at least one shot. Um, 46% of schools were open on the day he was sworn in. 96% of schools are open now. Uh, on and on. We have the best year for job improvement since they've been keeping records since the Great Depression, the largest decline in unemployment. Um, he's got a hell of a case. And legislatively, he's got two massive accomplishments, the Recovery Act, which he passed in his first 100 days, and the bipartisan infrastructure. What he needs to do now is disengage from the Hill. Send Kamala Harris. She's an accomplished senator. Send his chief of staff, Ron Klain, who's beloved on Capitol Hill. Send Steve Reschetti, who's one of his deputy chiefs of staff, who's beloved on the Hill. Send them and get the hell out. And he seemed to indicate in his press conference he's going to do this. But when he passed the Recovery Act, I talked to a guy I've known my whole adult life who I greatly admire, Bob Casey Jr. Bob and I uh, uh, started out in this business together. And he's, of course, senator from Pennsylvania. There's no more classic swing state today than Pennsylvania. And I said, what does Biden need to be doing? By the way, Bob Casey grew up on Washington Avenue in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is the exact street that Joe Biden had lived on. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's known, he's known Biden since he was born and loves him. So I said, what does the president need to be doing, Bob? And he said, two things that he hates doing. I said, what? He said, bragging and blaming. And you know what? He's got to do it. And he's not. He's not done a good enough job. So I, I, took, I went back and looked at that, at that um, Recovery Act. You know, there's $4 billion in it for opioid relief and treatment. This matters. You know, we lost 100,000 people last year, and nobody in Washington gave a damn. They just didn't give a shit, I thought. And Biden did, and he got that money in there. But why isn't he going now to communities, inner cities, rural, suburban? This thing is hitting everybody. And standing out in front of a new clinic that's offering treatment to 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 people so they don't die. You know, that's bragging, but it's also saving lives. It's shining a light on something that elites hate to think about and talk about. I don't know why. Um, he could be pulling all of these threads. Uh, and the same thing with the infrastructure package. Uh, dear God, we're, we're throwing money. I, I, I now, uh, you know, I live in rural Virginia. And in fact, I'm coming to you from an office that I had to rent because I don't have broadband on my farm. <laughs> so when I have to do CNN or, or podcasts, I have to drive into town off of my farm. And I tell my neighbors out in rural Virginia, you know, Biden's got 60, something like that, $60 billion in that infrastructure bill for rural broadband so that farmers can have access to the same high quality pornography that the city boys have. Yeah. <laughs> and they love that. <laughs> so he can pull on a lot of these threads. He needs to spend his second year not legislating, but leading and bragging and blaming. He needs to listen to his friend, Bob Casey Jr. Wow. That's um, yeah. Being a, he needs to be a classic pole in the way that he doesn't want to be, um, and in right. some instances, the way he didn't advertise himself as. I mean, you know, he's been a kind of a different Joe Biden since being president than the Joe Biden we knew before, the loquacious Joe Biden. Absolutely, you know, he's a sterner kind of uh, flintier character than we used to know. But um, yeah. he's got to tap back into his animal spirits on that. Uh, I think you're exactly right. Um, and and do you think he's getting bad advice? How do you think Ron Klain's doing? I mean, is that? Well, I think that team is great. Uh, I, now, I've been there, so I always feel for people who are in that job. Yes. Uh, I think that team is first class. I think they're terrific. I, I think Jen Psaki is as good a press secretary as I've seen. I think Ron Klain is outstanding. Um, my buddy Rochetti, it was so smart for him to bring Cedric Richmond in, who's a former congressman from New Orleans. I, I think it's a terrific team. Kate Bedingfield is her communications director. That's not the problem. The problem is they've had crisis after crisis, and I do think both the economy and COVID are poised to improve dramatically yeah. this year, which should allow him to get out more and to stop legislating and to start leading. So I don't think it's advice. I, don't, I really don't. I, I don't like sort of you know staff disarray, yeah, yeah. staff shakeup. <laughs> uh, it's never you know it's always the boss you know, yeah. and I, I, I so he's got 
to do this. And I think he can. I think he showed signs of it at that press conference. But he simply has to and he has to jettison. You, you talked about the different and conflicting agendas. There's the transformational and then there's the comforting. And you're right. Those are at war. So he has to generate transformation. He has to eject the transformational side and just return to normalcy and uh, no more of what we Catholics call Michigas. Right? <laughs> yeah. been so much madness uh, under Trump. And I think people would rather have the calm than the transformational. He needs to jettison, except with rhetorically, the bipartisanship. He tried and tried and tried, and he got nothing for it. So he needs to reject that, and he needs to be more of a partisan. He needs to put the wood to these men and women and punish them for yeah. voting against the American people. So he's got to make hard choices, but that would be my counsel, is stop trying to be FDR. Every Democrat comes into office, and they're haunted by FDR. <laughs> um, stop it. Just stop it, sir. Yeah. Uh, and then he's got to stop trying to be all things to all people and talk about how much he loves Mitch McConnell. He's got to put the wood to those guys. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. And a lot of his fortunes and the fortunes of Democrats in these midterms coming up are exactly going to be the economy. You know, the the, the Omicron has sort of thrown it sideways a little bit. We, it's made it less predictable, and we don't know how things are going to go. But I do know this. When I pull up to the gas pumps where I live in a semi-rural area, there's a little sticker that people keep putting on all the gas pumps. And it's a picture of Joe Biden pointing uh, at the price on the gas. And it says, I did that. And uh, so, you know, this is the sort of like, if people are putting stickers on there, of course, it's like some Trump partisan uh, who's just being, mm -hmm. you know, ordered it from a Dan Bongino or something. But, um, you know, like, uh, but his fortunes are tied to that. So can you talk to us a little bit about where you see that going? I mean, prognosticating the economy is a, uh, you know, a tough business, but uh, but do you agree that if the economy improves and he were able to uh, kind of take responsibility for it, you know, um, or, or take credit for it, you know, that could change the temperature of things in the midterms? Yeah, I, I do think. And wh what do I know? But uh, let me put this way. I think we're poised for a boom. And more importantly, uh, business people say that and economists say that. Uh, and I listen to them. And so I think they're right. Um, politically, you know, we went through this with Clinton. He came in in a mild recession compared to what poor Biden's had to deal with. But, you know, we we had various economic policies that we thought were pretty good. And we had a big debate. Should the president go around brag about the recovery that's coming and risk looking like he's out of touch? People would say, oh, yeah, you say you created all these jobs. I'm working three of them. Um, or, you know, should he, you know, let the kind of uh, economic juices flow and then let the benefits become apparent? It turns out, that we, we, we have data for this, right? I have experience. you got to brag about it or people will not, they, they won't know it's happening. They won't know you had a thing in the world to do with it. Uh, you, he's got to go out there and say, you know, that, that 350 bucks a month you're getting per child, that's me. That's because of yeah. me. Now it's about to run out because the Republicans are killing it. But if you liked getting that 350 a month, you can thank me. If you're upset that it's stopped, you need to call the Republicans and you need to vote Democrat. Yeah. He's got to go and make the case. Uh, he, he needs to go. He's invoked the uh, Defense Production Act to uh, make masks here in America so we don't have to rely on the Chinese. I think that's great. Why isn't he taking us to a factory mm -hmm. that he's opened up, putting working men and women back to work, saving lives for us? So he's just got to do a lot more of that. And I, it killed me three times, I counted, Joe, that he went up to the Hill and failed. Yeah, but you don't put the president in the room unless he's able to walk out and say we won. You just don't put him on the line like that. And I know, I know it's Biden because he's like, I live there. I have thirty six mm -hmm. years in the Senate, and then eight years as a vice president. I have forty four years of experience in that building, so I'm sure it was unstoppable. But if I were his advisor, I'd say you don't go 
until the deal's cooked, sir. Yep. And um, so he's he's got to disengage from Congress. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's like basically defines the news cycle for the last six months is like uh, the fact that a few high profile senators have put him in a squeeze play and like, you know, ruined his agenda. Right. So he's got to actually show that, no, they didn't ruin everything. And look at all this great stuff. Um, and, right. and, and by the way, we don't know where COVID will be six to eight months from now um, because, you know, it may fade into the background once again. And maybe we'll get it under control. Maybe people will have their masks down a little and we'll be where we were last summer. And Republicans have been, you know, that's been a big issue for them is just like anti-vax and masking and no masking and mandates and all that. And they won't have that as a tool in their uh, toolbox to go after, you know, Democratic candidates in the fall. But Trump was on TV recently, I guess, around the, the rally he did down in Arizona. And they asked him, like, what do you want? Republicans to do once they get into office? What what should be at the top yeah. of their agenda? And he gave this gobbledygook answer that was stream of consciousness nonsense, like a lot of his uh, nonsensical things that he said. But the thing that he kind of like, you watched his mind gravitate around was Afghanistan. As if, oh, well, that was such a terrible thing, the worst thing in history that's ever happened, you know, all the kind of nonsense that he says. And do you think that the mistakes of Afghanistan and, you know, on whole, it might have been a good decision to get out of there and been a positive thing for people, but people might associate it with, you know, the deaths, which were tragic. So do you think that people voting in the midterms care enough about foreign policy to make that a make or break issue? I don't. I don't. And it was it was messy. It was tragic, but it's over. Yeah. He got us out. And by the way, all he was doing was it was living up to a obligation that Trump had made. Yeah. It was Trump who set the date certain for the withdrawal of all U.S. troops. And now Biden could have unwound that. But I, I'm quite sure he believed, he said it at his press conference, that spending, what did he say, $300 million a day or a billion dollars a day or something? It was a billion. It's a billion dollars a day Wow. for 20 years, much less the 2,500 lives lost. You know, I, 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 have taught at Georgetown for 20 years off and on. I'm off now because of COVID, but so probably 17, 18 years teaching at Georgetown. And I bet you over the span, half of my students were soldiers, young officers. And, you know, we don't count them in the sense that they came back different too. And that, that duty was hard on every single man and woman we sent over there. And, you know, the acid test for me is, would you send your kid? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think most Americans uh, would say, no, I would. I would not want my son to serve over there. And some of my kids' friends have, and a great many of my students have. So I'm glad he got us out. It was awful how it played out. But I don't see politically either that becoming a big issue. I think Biden took a terrible hit politically. But I don't think the midterms are, are going to turn on that. And if they do, the Democrats have a pretty good answer, which is, yeah, I thought it was time to rebuild a country called America. How about some nation building here, you know, in Fort Bend County instead of in Kandahar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to that point, as we were, I was saying earlier, we've been talking about you know, what will matter to voters. What is going to matter to people is how the economy is doing. They're looking at the inflation. And as that gas pump sticker signifies, that's what they're concerned right. about. Right. And that has to get taken under control uh, in some way. And, and when we talk about that, though, what we're talking about is working class voters and middle American voters. And that's where the battle really is. You know, um, progressive voters in cities are going to vote a certain way, but the ones you can still get, the independents, the people in the middle. And in the last presidential election, though, even though Trump lost, they, they made gains on those on the working class and especially working class people of color, Hispanics, for instance. And one of the arguments out there is that part of what Trump has been able, why he appeals to some of those people that you might not ordinarily get, is they don't like what they're seeing out of the progressive side of the Democratic Party, that they get turned off by some of the woke stuff. And, uh, you know, listen, I work for Vanity Fair. I understand, uh, you know, we live in a in a more multicultural country and that equity and empowering the powerless should be a priority. And it's part of the American idea, right? 
but obviously the specter of this the the Trump right uh, is appealing to people's sense that on the left is more fearful, <laughs> you know, that there's there's something scarier and more mm-hmm. fascist about the left. And I guess I'm wondering, like, you count yourself as a progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, have you been concerned at all about whether that is hurting the Democratic Party and hurting even Biden's prospects? When working class and middle class people see some of the excesses and overreach in policing and right. yes, <laughs> you know, social workers have this great saying, you have to meet people where they live. You know, it's like the old joke about the prison reformer who toured the, the state prison in Huntsville, Texas, and came out and said, well, the first thing we got to do is attract a higher class of inmates. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have to meet yeah. you have to meet people where they are. Yeah. not where you wish they were. And if I can, I'm going to share with you, uh, I tend to be a reductionist. My very favorite political statistic, which I think is defining our times, and that's this. When George Washington ran for president, obviously 100% of the voters were white and male, but 100% white because we had structural racism. Yeah. 208 years later, 208 after the 13th, 14th, 15th, 19th Amendment, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Bill Clinton's running and I'm working for him. And that hundred percent had dropped all the way to 89. That's it. That's it. 11 point erosion in white voting power over 208 years. Nine out of 10 voters in a Clinton election were white. From Clinton to Biden, which is my career, it's gone from 89 to 69. Wow. More diminution in the power of white votes than in the last 28 years than the previous 208. How white people react to that is what's driving our politics, because it's not just their voting power. They see it in their communities and in their schools and in their businesses and at their their universities. How white people react to that is what's driving our politics, right? Some white people, I suspect you and me, uh, I know you and me, we look at it and we think, God, this is great. This is great. My doctor is from Iran and my dentist is from Brazil and my neighbor is from Vietnam. And, you know, my sister-in-law is from Venezuela and it's all good. I see it as like a hundred to nothing good, right? Everything is better. The music is better. The food is better. The culture is more interesting. Like I just think diversity is such a winner for me and I win in every possible way. But there are a lot of white people, particularly a lot of them that didn't go to college who see that same richness of diversity, and they feel very fearful, as you mentioned. They feel very threatened. And Trump comes in and appeals to their amygdala and Mm -hmm. says, hey, fear them. They look different from you. Mm -hmm. I bet they're coming to hurt you. And, you know, fear is a very powerful motivator. And I think it's demagogic. I think it's racist what Trump does. But I know it's also effective. So when we say to those people, you're a racist, we tend not to win their votes. And it's the fallacy of composition. All the racists are Trump supporters, but not all the Trump supporters are racist. Yeah. And you know, we've got to be able to talk to people who are fearful of the richness of diversity and show them how they can be winners. How, you know, it's, it's self-evident to you and me, but to a lot of folks, man, they're really, really scared. And, you know, I think, I think we can get a lot of them. I really do. And I think Biden won because he could get some of them. Because he yeah. could speak to them in a middle class way. But when you go to them and say, shut up, racist, and I'm going to defund your police department, they go, ah, Trump yeah. was right. No, yeah, he's yeah. not. He's not. And he's a racist. But I, I think I think Democrats ought to listen to their social workers and say, we got to meet people where they live and try to have some empathy for the fear that people are experiencing um, economically, especially, but also somewhat culturally. It doesn't mean that Democrats should ever walk away from support of equal rights and LGBTQ plus rights and every none of that. They don't have to abandon anything. But I think if you come to those folks and say, which I happen to believe is true, which what Bill Clinton and Barack Obama always said about these things, they would go to the white working class and they would say, you know, they're trying to manipulate you. They're trying to divide you from your neighbor because they know you have the same interest. You're both struggling to get a job. You're both unable to make your car payment. You're both having a hard time finding insurance that you can afford. They're dividing you against each other because they don't want you to unite on your economic interests. And I watched those two win lots of white working class votes with that explanation. I happen to believe it's true. 
growing up in Texas, we saw this every day. You know how the ruling class would use uh, race to divide us and distract us and divert mm-hmm. us so that we wouldn't unite. So I, I think that kind of a message is is really really important for those folks. And I do f- worry that some Democratic elites look down their noses at those folks and uh, you know can't grow up where you and I did and have that same contempt uh, for working class people. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I'm. I think that. Um... The Biden that people elected needs to be the messenger again and try to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but he's also got to have people helping empower that. His congressional allies need to, uh, to the degree they can, help him bring back that message of normalization. And, and, and there is an argument out there that I've heard and read that, you know, the voting rights thing may have seemed like a quixotic thing. You know, you're not going to get anywhere with this. And but he's also got to turn to his progressive constituents and say, listen, we tried, you know, and this is where we right. I, I, I moved us in that direction. I put it into the ether. We threw the ball in the air and that's where it landed. Right. Um, and, it's, uh, you know, they, right. And, and then and then take I think this is where the two parties are very different. Clinton used to say this all the time. Republicans want wedge issues. Because they have a pretty monolithic party and we have a very diverse party. So they want to put wedges between us based on race or gender or sexual orientation or whatever. I want web issues. And and the truth is Biden did a good job. And I thought Obama was spectacular at this, as was Clinton, in uniting the progressives and and the moderates over non-ideological issues, not left, right, but up, down. And Democrats need to find web issues. And it turns out better jobs, good schools, being able to afford health insurance. That's just as important to the most progressive Park Slope liberal <laughs> as it is to a hard-pressed uh, uh, some uh, guy in, in, uh, in, in rural America. So that, that's, I think, the difference. They're always looking to divide, and that's their instinct on the Republican side. And I, I think that that is really, literally sinful. But the Democrats can't we can't win by division. We have to find ways to, to stitch people together. Let's look ahead a little bit and, and think about, you know, there are some people that already see the midterms as a fait accompli and we're going to have like, you know, Jim Jordan and Con- as the you know leader of the House, which is a kind of just makes my stomach turn. But, um, you know, people are already thinking about 2024. Shockingly, but that's our that's the world we live in. And would Biden run again? Is he the right guy to run again? We don't know where he'll be by then. And that, but the the fear is that Trump will be back, right? And a lot of people see that as like that's a done deal. It's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Who's a dream candidate for the Democrats in twenty twenty four? Joe Biden. I mean it. I mean he's going to run. He needs to run. Uh, he was very forceful when he was asked about Vice President Harris. Yes, she's doing a very good job. And yes, I want her on the ticket. Um, and and I think it's the other side that's much more compelling and frightening. Yeah. I, I talked to someone really close to Trump. I mean, really close. And I said, is he going to run? And he said, it's 100 mm-hmm. percent. He didn't say, oh, unless, yeah. you know, God forbid, he slips in the bathtub. He said, it's 100 percent. So Trump's going to run. Therefore, Trump's going to win the nomination with all respect to Chris Christie and Ron DeSantis. Right. I think Trump has the iron grip on the base of his party. Um, And so he'll be the nominee. Well, we know that Biden can beat Trump. He already has. So I I think that the Democrats, I think it's pointless to speculate, oh, who post Biden? I know it's human nature. But again, we got to get this president more power. That's mm-hmm. that's my interest right now. And I think because I think if if we don't get him more power, not only could you have a Jim Jordan or Kevin McCarthy speaker looks more likely than not, but you could have a Donald Trump president again, which, you know, Trump would not, he would go down in history then as not only the worst president in American history, but quite possibly the last uh, of a democracy. I mean, I think he's that much of an existential threat to the to the republic. Yeah. Well, a lot of people think that we've read a lot of articles about it lately. We're in a moment in our, you know, you and I both live in a in a world in which we understand the contours of troughs and 
and the top, you know, you could be up one day and down the next. We're in a kind of a trough for Biden. He's he suffered a lot of blows. It's January. It's 2022. There's a you know the the COVID hasn't hasn't receded, but you know three to four months from now. You know, we could be on a crest and he could be in a totally different place. And we just don't know. And uh, but it seems like your message to Democrats is keep the faith here. I think so. Yeah. And you're right, though. These things do. uh, They go up and down. I know this. This is a terrible patch for Biden. It's awful. And it's nowhere near the hardest week of his life. And there is a steel in his spine, uh, you know, forged by tragedy. That is real. And I've known him a long time and that will sustain him. And again, we have to sustain him, too. We being Democrats and progressives. And but I think the more likely, the more plausible scenario, most plausible scenario is that both COVID gets better and the economy gets stronger. That seems pretty likely. And if both of those things are moving in the right direction, man, I, you know, I, I and, and all they have to offer, again, is Trump, who, as you point out, doesn't even have an agenda. He, he, he literally doesn't even pretend to do anything for his supporters, or we wouldn't have lost 100,000 people to opioids. Right. right? He simply has the same enemies. And that's enough for a few of them, for, for many of them. He's just going to own the libs. He's going to hate us so much. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Biden can come to them and say, yeah, Trump offers you all this hate, but Here's what I'm doing to make your life better, make it a little easier to afford your health insurance, make it a little easier to get your kid uh, a free community college. You know, the other things that he's working on. And I, I like his odds in that in that scenario. Yeah. Well, I like the odds for Paul Begala, too. And I'll, I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, last year, you published a book called You're Fired, The Perfect Guide for Beating Donald Trump. And now you can sell it again in 2024. Um, just you have <laughs> to change the title again. to You're Not Hired. Right. Uh, <laughs> I like that, Joe. Uh, yeah, I'm just publisher. trying to help you out here, Paul. Um, <laughs> one text into another. Yeah. Paul Begala, thank you for coming on Inside the Hive. Joe, thanks. It's great to be Inside the Hive with you. I love it here. And that's our episode this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Paul Begala, for coming on Inside the Hive. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs, and the people at Cadence 13. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe. Come back next week when Emily Jane Fox is going to have a great exclusive interview about something that matters right now and in the future. Mysterious, huh? And I'd like to thank our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this program. See you next week. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis, no spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with the New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.